Today, we are continuing to discuss Christianity and African enslavement as it existed in the British North American colonies and later the United States uh, from the period generally 1619 to 1863. In other words, we're looking at the antebellum period, the period before the Civil War. And you can't hear. Can we get volume increase? Thank you. Is that better? Yes. Can you hear me now? Yes. <laughs> Maybe Greg should move up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, very quickly at the beginning, I just want to run through a, a, a short list of books. If you're interested in studying more about this topic, uh, there's a book titled The Peculiar Institution by Kenneth Stamp, written in the 50s. I have no idea if it's still in print. I don't know if it's gone through, uh, you know, editions, up, updates, or so forth. I'm sure you could find that on the internet. <clears throat> uh, the Peculiar Institution, Slavery in the Antebellum South by Stamp, S-T-A-M-P-P. Kenneth Stamp. Our Good Old Standby, The Slave Community by John Blassingame. Excellent resource, well-researched. Again, out of print, but you can find used copies online. I was able to get a used copy and uh, put it, I bought it for the church library. I don't know if it's been checked out, but it's, we have one in the church library. The Problem of Slavery in Christian America by Joel McDermott. Excellent, excellent work, which completely lays bare the, I guess you could say, the lawsuit against American Christianity because of the institution of slavery and the unwillingness and indeed vehement opposition against abolition, against uh, the against the whole practice itself and against the efforts by many to bring black Americans into full citizenship and full participation in the, the life of this nation. And again, another excellent work, The Black Church by Henry Louis Gates, very readable, uh, very well-written book. Uh, you will find many surprising things in there that you didn't know about. Uh, again, these things are not taught in the schools. Um, there's very little taught about slavery. Uh, most of the history that's taught, when it's taught, focuses on wars. And of course, slavery was the biggest cause of the Civil War, and yet the focus is really more on the battles, the strategies of the generals, all the political factors, and leaves out a lot of other things. Um, so. What you got in school is not adequate. Um, so I encourage you to study more on your own. Following on the heels of the American War for Independence from Great Britain, the second Great Awakening spread through America, brought by itinerant circuit-riding preachers. As with the first Great Awakening, enslaved blacks were evangelized along with whites. Beginning in Kentucky and Tennessee, the movement spread among Baptists, Methodists, and Presbyterians. 
Due to its strong anti-slavery stance, many enslaved blacks were attracted to the Methodist movement and joined Methodist churches. While religious revival was occurring in America and England and Europe uh, during this time in various spots sporadically, the movement to abolish slavery was actually gathering some momentum. Although some abolitionists opposed slavery for purely philosophical reasons, in other words, slavery, you know, the ideas about, around slavery uh, countered the ideas of the Enlightenment. Um, and so some people opposed it on philosophical grounds. Anti-slavery movements in the United States attracted strong religious elements. Throughout Europe and the United States, Christians usually from uninstitutional Christian faith movements, not directly connected with traditional state churches, or nonconformist believers within established churches were to be at the forefront of the abolitionist movements. And I haven't really talked about them a whole lot, but the Quakers were consistently to be found at the forefront of abolitionism in these early years of the United States. By 1817, in Charleston, South Carolina, there were 350 whites in the Methodist church in that city, but black members totaled 5,400. Remember from last time when I showed you that map, in a lot of places, blacks, most of them enslaved, outnumbered whites. And this is a quote from Gates's book on the black church. Over time, more itinerant preachers were black. Harry Hosier, a former slave, was considered one of the greatest preachers during this period and moved crowds of both whites and blacks to tears, although he could not read or write. One of the greatest Christian black leaders of this period is Richard Allen, born into slavery on February 14, 1760, so that's in advance of the American War for Independence, on the Delaware property of Benjamin Chu. In his youth, Richard and his mother and siblings were sold to Stokely Sturgis, a plantation owner in Delaware. Although later separated from his mother, Richard began to attend meetings of the local Methodist society with his older brother and sister. Richard taught himself to read and write and joined the Methodists at the age of 17. He began evangelizing and attracted criticism from local slave owners. He and his brother worked diligently at their tasks so that their owner and other slave owners could not say that Christianity led to laziness among slaves. The Reverend Freeborn Gerritsen, who had freed his own slaves in 1775, began to preach in Delaware. He was among many Methodist and Baptist ministers after the American War for Independence who encouraged slaveholders to emancipate their people. When Gerritsen visited the Sturgis Plantation to preach, Allen's master was touched by this declaration and began to give consideration to the thought that holding slaves was sinful. Sturgis was soon convinced that slavery was wrong and offered the enslaved people on his plantation an opportunity to buy their freedom. Allen performed extra work to earn the money and bought his freedom in 1780. In December 1784, at the famous Methodist Christmas Conference, 
a, a crucial step in Methodism becoming really established in America, Allen was admitted and qualified as a Methodist preacher. He was one of two black attendees of the conference, along with the legendary Harry Hosier, but neither were permitted to vote during deliberations at the conference. So there's early in this period, there's the beginnings of discrimination being practiced. He moved to Philadelphia, which had a growing community of free blacks. By 1786, Allen became a preacher at St. George's Methodist Episcopal Church in Philadelphia, but was restricted to preaching only at the early morning services. As he attracted more black congregants, the church vestry ordered them to be held in a separate area for worship, a further step in segregation. Allen regularly preached on the commons or the central park of Philadelphia near the church, slowly gaining a congregation of nearly 50 people and supporting himself with a variety of odd jobs. Allen also wove the concepts of liberty and justice for all from the Declaration of Independence into his sermons. And it certainly has to be said that despite the amount of illiteracy among blacks in America, both free and enslaved, you know, you could not help but hear at this, at this point in time, leading up to the American War for Independence, you would, you would be aware of the principles that Americans were beginning to assert to declare that they should be free from the rule of Great Britain. And this would obviously impact the thinking of enslaved blacks, uh, that we too can be free, that we, can, we too can share in justice for all and should. Allen and Absalom Jones, 1746 to 1818, a lay minister, founded the Free African Society in 1787, a mutual aid society for blacks. Um, so what they're beginning to do is, especially for newly freed blacks, a society that would help them get their footing in, in their new status um, and help them you know, begin to live a better life. By 1790, Allen had married and started a family, so working as an itinerant preacher was not possible for him. And this is a portrait of Absalom Jones, and there are his dates. Again, like Richard Allen, he was born into slavery in Delaware. He taught himself to read and write and purchased his freedom. Later, he would push back against a growing movement to return black American slaves to Africa. And this is probably something else you won't hear commonly spoken about, but many abolitionists wanted the slaves to be freed, but they didn't want them to stay in the US. They wanted to ship them back to Africa. And a lot of the newly freed blacks were saying, no, we should be full citizens, full participants in American life. We, some of them did go back to Africa eventually, Others felt, I want to stay here. This is my home. This is where I should live. Increasingly, the segregated seating policy and other discriminatory church governance practices of St. George's seemed to Allen and Jones to be completely at odds with the gospel and the principles of the American War for Independence. They decided to leave St. George's to create an independent, self-reliant worship place for blacks in Philadelphia. On a Sunday in 1792, 
when Jones was told to not sit in the whites-only pews, Jones and Allen led the black attenders at St. George's out of the building. There was opposition from the white church as well as the more established blacks in the community who wanted to merely fit in or not stir up any hard feelings. Allen and his flock called their church the Bethel Church of the African Episcopal Church of St. Thomas. It's a mouthful. Later, this would become the African Methodist Episcopal Church, or AME. So if you ever have driven by a church and you see AME, or African Methodist Episcopal Church, on the cornerstone, there are, quite, there are many uh, such churches in the United States, many of them built in the 19th century, and you will see on the cornerstone the name of their church. If you wonder where that came from, that's where this church came from. Allen did not cut ties with the Methodist movement initially, and in 1799 became its first black deacon. Uh, but later, white Methodist efforts to control the black congregation led to a complete break. So again, these black members of the Methodist church did not want to have to separate from that church. But unfortunately, uh, what white Methodists did necessitated it. Allen, along with Absalom Jones, William Gray, and William Wilcher had found an available lot on 6th Street near Lombard Street in Philadelphia. Allen negotiated a price and purchased this lot in 1787 on which to build a church, but it was several years before they had a building. Now currently occupied by Mother Bethel AME Church, it is the oldest parcel of real estate in the U.S. that has been owned continuously by black Americans. But there were attempts by white Methodists to take the church building that Allen and his congregation owned. In 1816, Allen went to court to assert the AME claims to the building and land and prevailed. This was, you know, this is incredible. The church is still standing today. This is not the original church building. This particular building was built in, uh, was completed in 1890. And again, it is the oldest church property in the U.S. to be continuously owned by African Americans, and you can go visit it if you're ever in Philadelphia. Mother Bethel was one of the first black churches in the United States and was dedicated on July 29th. 1794 by Methodist Bishop Francis Asbury. So they got the blessing of the uh, white established majority of the Methodist movement. And later in 1794, the congregation was received in full fellowship in the Methodist Episcopal Church, which meant if you were a member of the AME church, you could go take communion in any Methodist church. That's what it means to be in full communion or full fellowship. After the Civil War, AME missionaries went south to help freedmen and planted many new churches. In 2009, members of Mother Bethel and St. George's gathered together for Sunday worship at St. George's for the first time since the walkout in the late 1700s. 2009. Yep. Uh, now, we want to take a brief moment to talk about the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, and that's a mouthful, too. 
and we'll abbreviate it as AME Zion, and most people know it by that name. The origins of this church can be traced to the John Street Methodist Church of New York City. Following acts of overt discrimination in New York, such as black parishioners being forced to leave worship, many black members left to form their own churches. The first church founded by the AME Zion Church organization was built in 1800 and was named Zion. One of the founders was William Hamilton, a prominent orator and an abolitionist. Like the AME denomination, AME Zion adheres to Wesleyan or Arminian theology and is solidly evangelical and is structured like the AME. Both churches are Episcopal. Again, remember the Methodist movement came out of the Anglican Church of England. And so the idea of an Episcopal church government is very much a part of these churches. Their church government has bishops and general conferences where church activities and goals are discussed and decided upon and where ministers are ordained. Due to the social and political structures of American life in the 18th and 19th centuries, both church bodies advocated for the abolition of slavery and abolitionist activities were a significant aspect of church life. The institution of chattel slavery clashing with the gospel and the scriptures, coupled with racism and segregationist ideas, led to the formation of predominantly black churches. Prior to the Civil War, these churches and their leaders were very acting, active in helping fugitive and slave persons escape to safety through the Underground Railroad. These churches were central institutions within the communities of free blacks forming in northern US states. Education, financial assistance, and community support for newly freed blacks became an integral part of what these churches had to offer members. You know, there is no social security, there's no Medicare, there's no WIC program, there's no SNAP program. They don't have food stamps, they don't have food pantries. Well, they created their own, essentially. In other words, the churches had to be the self-help organizations that would lift freed blacks up. And again, they were very active uh, in helping blacks come to freedom through the Underground Railroad. We should also keep in mind that Methodism had not officially left its Anglican roots. The American War for Independence and its aftermath required a complete restructuring of the Anglican Church in the newly formed United States. So Anglican roots are still there, the Anglican Church is still present, but it's got to be restructured. And some blacks chose to stay within this new Anglican Church organization, which came to be called the Protestant Episcopal Church in the United States of America, or simply the Episcopal Church. And from this point on, if I refer to the Episcopal Church, that is what I am referring to. Absalom Jones, who had worked with Richard Allen, became the first black deacon, then priest, in the Episcopal Church. <clears throat> the American War for Independence also affected White's views for a time about the chattel slave system. And here's a quote from Blassingame. 
The egalitarian doctrines of the American Revolution and the Great Awakening created a sizable abolition party in Southern churches, which lasted in some states for more than 30 years. This is rather surprising. You know, we tend to think of the South at this point in time as just being 100% pro-slavery, but, you know, there was a diversity of ideas about slavery. In 1789, for example, the Virginia Baptist General Committee denouncing slavery as a horrid evil and violent deprivation of the rights of nature called for its abolition. Many Baptist, Methodist, and Presbyterian preachers and pastors gave fiery sermons against slavery. The pronouncements of antebellum pre-Civil War ministers profoundly affected the way masters thought about and treated their slaves. Until the 1820s, many planters convinced of the immorality of bondage joined with clergymen in seeking its abolition, caught up in the egalitarian fervor of the American Revolution and the religious fervor of Baptist and Methodist revivals in the 18th century, many ma masters began manumitting or freeing their slaves. And indeed, that is what happened in Richard Allen's situation. The man who owned him became convinced that it was wrong and created a path for Allen to get out of slavery. So some uh, slave owners simply freed their slaves. Others uh, basically chose the path that uh, Allen's owner, previous owner had chosen, which was to enable the slave to buy his freedom, essentially transferring him from being a slave to an indentured servant, in effect. In Maryland, for instance, masters manumitted thousands of slaves, primarily as a result of a series of Methodist revivals in the state. Throughout the antebellum period, many planters followed the lead of the Marylanders. But we should take a deeper look at what was going on in Maryland. Chattel slavery, as it was practiced in Maryland, was impacted not only by Protestant Christianity, but by Roman Catholicism as well. Maryland was originally founded as a colony where Roman Catholics could live, work, and practice their faith freely. Although smaller as a group than members of Protestant denominations, there were Roman Catholic colonists and later citizens throughout the new United States. The Roman Catholic position on chattel slavery was mixed, similar to the Protestant position in affirming that slavery is evil but accommodating church members who enslaved. By the 1830s, the Roman Catholic Church officially rejected slavery. In 1839, Pope Gregory XVI issued the bull in Supremo Apostolatus, condemning the slave trade. It condemned the slave trade. It didn't condemn the owning of slaves. That's a key, it, you know, you can look up exactly what that pronouncement uh, advocated. It simply said, we can't enslave people, but it said nothing about the people who were currently enslaved. Catholic bishops in America were always ambivalent about slavery. Two slaveholding states, Maryland and later Louisiana, had large contingents of Catholic residents. However, both states had also the largest numbers of former slaves who were freed. John Carroll, Archbishop of Baltimore, Maryland, had two black servants, one free and the other a slave. 
The Society of Jesus, the Jesuits in Maryland, owned slaves who worked on their farms. Profits from these plantations were used to support schools and universities. Jesuits in Maryland had turned to enslaved labor when the number of white indentured servants decreased. By 1765, they owned 192 enslaved black people, and the number would grow to over 200 in the 19th century. And this is a quote from Gates' uh, work on the black church. Just as George Whitfield had done in Georgia, so the Jesuits used enslaved blacks on plantations in Maryland to support educational institutions. But the Jesuits' plantations could not keep Georgetown University out of debt. In 1838, the Jesuits sold 272 enslaved people for $115,000, which would be about $3.3 million in today's dollars. The profits from this sale made it possible for Georgetown University, in existence today, to get out of debt and become financially sound. Now, at the same time, the Roman Catholic Church welcomed both enslaved and free blacks into the church. And one of the things that I found was um, that I had never known before I started studying and researching this topic, there were actually a lot of black Roman Catholics and the number of Roman Catholic blacks has continued to increase. And later, as we get into more modern periods, we'll come back to this. In 1831, Pope Gregory XVI recognized the Oblate Sisters of Providence, a Baltimore order organized by Mary Elizabeth Lang, a black woman who had fled the Haitian Revolution and arrived in the United States in the mid-1810s. So here's a black Roman Catholic starting up an order of nuns in America. I was surprised to find these, uh, this group. These are the Oblate Sisters of Providence, Maryland, formed July 2nd, 1828. And this particular picture, there are two black nuns pictured and a group of school children. Uh, it appears to be mostly girls, uh, perhaps all girls. Uh, and again, this is the first black order of nuns in America. Did you know that such a thing existed? I didn't. Uh, these Oblate Sisters were free black women who founded schools for black children and they continue to this day. This order has continued through the years, and you probably can't see it very well because it's in really small print, but there's a website called AfricanAmericanRegistry.org, a great resource for, um, his, it's got short little articles about all kinds of historical topics uh, connected with uh, blacks in America, and very useful, very good website. Despite the presence of Roman Catholics in some parts of the U.S. in the early 19th century, Catholics only started to become a significant part of the U.S. population in the 1840s with the arrival of poor Irish and Southern Italian immigrants. These immigrants congregated in urban, in other words, non-farming environments, especially in the North, and were not a significant presence in the Southern U.S. The overwhelming majority of slave owners in the U.S., were white Protestants, or WASPs, if you've ever heard the term WASP, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. 
In the years leading up to the Civil War, however, many Irish Catholics joined the abolitionist movement as they saw it as an extension of their fight for Irish freedom from British rule in their homeland. Later on, uh, Irish immigrants would come to play, even though they weren't perhaps the largest group that joined the abolitionist movement, they were, they were um, very, very much opposed to slavery because the British had enslaved the Irish anyway. The decades between the American War for Independence and the Civil War saw the ebb and flow of the movement to abolish slavery in the US. Although the ministers led in the formation of hundreds of abolition societies in the upper south states of Maryland, Tennessee, Kentucky, North Carolina, and Delaware between 1790 and 1829, emancipationist sentiment among Southern clergymen began to erode in the early decades of the 19th century. By the 1830s, a Southern backlash began against abolition. Reeling from the attacks of the abolitionists after 1830s, the 1830s, the planters launched a massive propaganda campaign to convince whites at home and abroad that slavery was a positive good. Led by the brilliant South Carolinian John C. Calhoun, the Southern propagandists quickly began to attack the churches. Arguing that slavery was a political institution, the propagandists insisted first that it was outside the sphere of church interest. So in other words, this is purely a political thing. The church has no business getting involved in it. Some northern clergymen had gone so far as to advocate excommunicating slaveholders. And in some cases, slaveholders were excommunicated uh, if it came to light in the larger community that they had abused their slaves, which many, of course, did. The peculiar institution expanded in the 1830s and 40s. The number of slaveholding preachers, bishops, and elders increased in the South. Sometimes, like the Jesuits, Southern churches owned slaves. More and more Southern ministers had family ties with slave owners. Increasingly, there were threats and even mob attacks made on Southern abolitionist clergymen driving some North. Pressure was put on Southern clergymen to take the opposite stance to justify slavery and put a Christian spin on it. And Joel McDermott's book, The Problem of Slavery in Christian America, it's a long book. It's not easy reading. It's not difficult reading in a technical sense. It's a very difficult topic, um, and it's long. Um, but that book lays out this whole idea of Christian slavery. We're going to Christianize this horrible evil. By the 1850s, some ministers were advocating that slavery was a divine institution, a blessing to both master and slave. So you can see this, you know, the pendulum has swung, uh, unfortunately, way to, the, to a really bad uh, situation. Keep in mind that Congress outlaid, or rather, sorry, Congress outlawed uh, the importation of slaves in, I believe it's 1808. Is that right, Greg? Do you... uh, in the U.S., 1807. 
Right. So you, after 1808, you can no longer bring in slaves from other parts of the world into the United States. That is now illegal. So that means, you know, the, so the idea of freeing these slaves, if you can't bring in more and you want to keep the ones you've got, you're going to really resist these, uh, these, you know, voices that are telling you to free your slaves. The trade, correct. In 1807, uh, the U.S. outlawed the slave trade, but did not outlaw slavery until the Civil War. Right. Correct. So the movement of the clergy towards support of slavery was accompanied by increasing concern over the treatment and education of the bondsmen. The clergy urged slaveholders to treat their bondsmen humanely. A multitude of sermons, pastoral letters, essays in newspapers and magazines, reports and resolutions of ecclesiastical bodies, books between 1740 and 1860 dealt with the temporal needs of the slaves of Christian masters. The major campaign of the clergy was, however, to convince 19th century masters to give religious instructions to their slaves. But what was the end goal? It was to make the slaves better slaves. So Christianity has now, essentially Protestant Christianity has now become a tool in the hands of those who want to solidify and perpetuate this institution and indeed make it grow. Because again, which this is usually taught in schools, as, as American settlers pressed westward, there was increasing pressure and desire for southern states to expand slavery into these newly, um, newly explored territories, Texas, uh, you know, throughout the American Southwest, they wanted to uh, extend it. And again, if you remember from American history, whenever you took it, the Missouri Compromise and all these other things, because there was an increasing, as, as the United States expanded geographically, there was increasing pressure and increasing stress between those who wanted to expand slavery in the new territories and later states and those who very much did not want it to, to be spread. Um, one interesting thing about the state of Ohio, the state that you live in, uh, and that is that when the Northwest Territory was first opened up, um, clergymen from Massachusetts, essentially from Puritan backgrounds, were very much in favor of people from Massachusetts going to settle in southeast, what became later Southeast Ohio, around Marietta. Um, and they wanted Northerners who did not own slaves to settle in the Northwest Territory because they definitely did not want slavery in the Northwest Territory. And they did their best to fund and support settlers to go from the New England states into Southeast Ohio to begin to form settlements. Greg? We probably have quite a few members who don't know Correct, the Northwest Territory was a big chunk of land. <laughs> yeah, later it was carved up into four states. Yes. 
so you can think of them, as, sometimes they've been referred to as the mid-Atlantic mid region transferring kind of over into the upper Midwest. Um, so, uh, you know, the nor there, were, there was a, an explicit push by uh, northern Puritan clergymen that slavery should not be allowed to expand in this territory. And a number of people left Massachusetts and settled in what later became Southeast Ohio around Marietta, and they were adamant that slavery would not be introduced, which you know, later became crucial because Kentucky, right you know, south of us by an hour or so, um, was a slave state. <clears throat> While there was increasing social, political, and religious controversy over slavery and whether it should be abolished and how it should be abolished, abolitionists, whites, and blacks were acting on their own. The Underground Railroad was a network of clandestine routes and safe houses in the U.S. during the early to mid-19th century. It was used by enslaved African Americans primarily to escape into free U.S. states and Canada. Various other routes led to Mexico, where slavery had been abolished, and to islands in the Caribbean that were not part of the slave trade. And here we have a, um, I think this was from 1906, this map was made in 1906, and it shows the routes, I don't know, that's pretty, that's pretty viewable. Um, you can see all those red lines, this is where, uh, Primarily, you know, these were paths that were used frequently by slaves escaping to the north from the southern states. A lot of those paths traveled through Ohio, as you can see. And Cincinnati and other parts of Ohio um, and the, some of the other northern states played a key role in helping um, enslaved blacks escape to freedom. The Underground Railroad did not have a headquarters, nor were there published guides, maps, pamphlets, or even newspaper articles. Secret meeting points, routes, transportation, and safe houses were maintained by abolitionist sympathizers and communicated by word of mouth. Participants generally organized in small independent groups. This helped to maintain secrecy. Conductors on the railroad came from various backgrounds and included freeborn blacks, white abolitionists, the former, many of whom were clergymen or connected with the churches in some way, especially Quakers. The formerly enslaved either escaped or manumitted and Native Americans. A very famous conductor, perhaps the most famous uh, to us today, was Harriet Tubman. Born into slavery, Tubman escaped and subsequently made some 13 missions to rescue approximately 70 enslaved people, including family and friends. During the Civil War, she served as an armed scout and spy for the Union Army. Harriet was one of nine children in her family. As was common for the enslaved, her father lived and worked on another plantation, and she seldom saw him. The owner of Harriet's mother and children sold three of Harriet's sisters, and when he decided to sell her youngest brother, Harriet's mother resisted by hiding him, aided by other enslaved people and freedmen in the community. 
Finally, when the owner came to get the boy, Harriet's mother said, you are after my son, but the first man that comes into my house, I will split his head open. This early experience may have shown Harriet that resistance was possible. Harriet had to do hard labor in the fields, doing forest work, driving oxen, plowing, and hauling logs. As a teenager, she suffered a terrible blow on the head from an overseer who threw a two-pound metal weight at another enslaved person who was attempting to flee. The weight struck Tubman instead, which she said broke my skull. She received no medical treatment, but managed to recover from this severe in injury. After her injury, Harriet began experiencing visions and vivid dreams, which she believed came from God. She became a devout Christian with a passionate faith in God. Although illiterate, she was told Bible stories by her mother and likely attended a, mess, a Methodist church with her family. She rejected the teachings of the New Testament that urged slaves to be obedient and found guidance in the Old Testament tales of deliverance. Does anybody know what Harriet's uh, nickname came to be? Bible character name? Moses. Moses, correct. She came to be called Moses. Tubman and her brothers, Ben and Harry, escaped from slavery on September 17, 1849. The attempt was unsuccessful, but later she tried again on her own. Tubman had to travel by night on a journey of about 90 miles, guided by the North Star, and trying to avoid slave catchers eager to collect rewards for fugitive slaves. Finally, she crossed into Pennsylvania with a feeling of relief and awe, and recalled the experience years later. When I found I had crossed that line, I looked at my hands to see if I was the same person. There was such a glory over everything, the sun came like gold through the trees and over the fields, and I felt like I was in heaven. And uh, I put these quotes, sorry, I put these quotes, um, I did want to cite the footnotes correctly. Um, so uh, the, um, there have been several movies made about Harriet Tubman and her journey and her uh, trials and her fight during the Civil War on the Union side and all of her exploits. And uh, there have been several biographies. There, there's an autobiography uh, where she relates her, the story of her life to um, someone else who wrote it down. Um, yes, yes. Yes, it, it is. It is excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and you can you can watch movies about you know that tell the story of her life. Um, I encourage you to do further research on your own. Uh, you will find amazing things about American history. Some of it's hard. Some of it's good and inspiring. Uh, but you should know that history. It's the history of the country you live in. Um, that concludes what I have for today's presentation. 
Um, any other questions or comments? We have time for a few questions. <laughs> 